Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome, this is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, and DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manischel, I'm a writer, director, producer, who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I'm currently making more. I'm also a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. On this Thursday bonus episode, we're going to play the interview from episode 101 with indie filmmaking legend Jared Hess, who got famous for making, you know, the most massive independent feature of all time, Napoleon Dynamite, and then went on to make a number of other movies starring some of the most famous actors out there. I was not in this interview and I, I've never listened to it. And now I'm like, well, now here's my chance. <laughs> After that, we play a round of the game, the game. But don't forget to check out our Patreon. So we're going to really gracefully, good job, Liz, segue to our Patreon plugin. So Patreon is how we keep the show running. It is a it is a way you could give a monthly gift to the show. Uh, you sign up on patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. You could give as little as a dollar. You could give as much as $10, $15, $100. It all goes to our editor and keeps the show running. But without any further bibble babble, here's our throwback interview with Jared Hess. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Great. All right. We're in. Awesome. We're doing it. Sweet. This is like a year in the making, Jared. I know, man. I'm so sorry that you're dealing with big talk late. <laughs> no, no you don't have to apologize. No, we're so excited to have you on the show, man. This is going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, totally. Tim, you're looking good. I'm sorry my oh, video Skype's not working, but you have some handsome red, fra- red frames, it looks like. Yeah, if you if you need us to turn off our video at any point, let us know if it starts like jamming up your signal. No problem. Cool. Well, the the reason we wanted to have you on this podcast was because, um, like, pretty much since episode one, we've been talking about this filmmaker's dream, like this dream that we all have, like when we're making our our first films that we're going to make it into Sundance, we're going to win a bunch of awards, then Hollywood's going to like whisk us off, and our careers are going to be set. And you are one of those people that that seemed to have happened to. And so we wanted to talk to you about it. And like, does this dream exist? The one that we all kind of imagine in our head? Or is it kind of just this fantasy that we have? And it's really not as easy as we make it sound. It's pretty deep, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty deep. Um, You know, I mean, for me, so I, I, you know, I moved around a ton growing up. And then I ended up living in, in Preston, Idaho. And that's where I finished 
high school, like my last three years of, of high school were in Preston where we ended up shooting Napoleon Dynamite. And, um, you know, my, my love of filmmaking began in high school. And when I went to college, I attended Brigham Young University. And just the proximity of the Sundance Film Festival, um, you know, it was something that as a student, you could just drive through the canyon and there you were and you could see every amazing independent film that they had at the festival that year. So it was always, it was a dream for me. It, you know, it felt like, oh, there's no, when you start reading, you know, what the odds are of you getting in and you, you know, I, I'd always felt that it was an impossible dream to achieve and, and yeah. that, you know, so many people submit and have their hearts broken year after year. <laughs> right. Yeah, we are those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I have friends that submit, I, you know, I get a couple of calls or emails a year from different people going, yes, I'm about to submit to Sundance. Can you put in a good word for me? <laughs> sure. But they won't show me their film. So I don't know if it's a mega turd or, or what, but, right. you know, and I'm, I'm happy to do it. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who or what you are. It's just based on the merits of, of the film, mm-hmm. you know, that determine whether or not it, it gets in. And, you know, I mean, a lot of different things go into play. Yeah, when you were going to submit Napole- or even just make Napoleon Dynamite and submit it to Sundance, did you think that that was going to be the start of your career or were you really just innocently just trying to get it into a cool festival? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's funny. We Before I did Napoleon, um, I made a short film with John Heater called Peluca, which was kind of the beginnings of, of the Napoleon character. And it was shot in black and white. We shot it in Preston, in, in my hometown. Um, and we permed giant heater's hair and put him in moon boots. <laughs> and, you know, it was a, kind of an exercise in what the character, you know, was going to be for the feature. We'd had the idea for the feature already, but wanted to kind of play around with it um, in short form. And we didn't even submit that film to Sundance because I literally could not afford like the 50 or $100 submission fee that they had right wow. slam dance was much cheaper um and i was like yeah i can afford twenty dollars um this month and so we just submitted a slam dance and it got into slam dance and was in competition there and that that festival has a great pedigree of of amazing filmmakers that have come through there and even you know ones that have ended up winning oscars and, and that kind of a thing uh, but we got into Slam. It's, it's a much you know smaller festival, but still up at Park City. Um, and then we, you know, we were able to get the funding from screening it up there. Uh, a buddy of mine from film school, Jeremy Kuhn, who produced the film, his brother um, was a very wealthy man, had started his own company and, and basically cut us a check for $200,000 to go make Napoleon. By the time wow. we had screened the short film up at Slam Nets, we had our first draft of Napoleon Dynamite in hand, it was like an 85 page screenplay. And he said, yeah, you know, go, go and do it. And so we, we quickly got our act together over the next, you know, four or five months and um, started pulling the film together. So we shot the film up in Preston, Idaho in 23 days. The crew was mostly comprised of buddies of mine from film school. And, um, and then we started cutting the film in Los Angeles. My, uh, friend Jeremy, who was the producer, um, was also the editor. And so we were cutting it in his apartment in Westwood 
and um, it was very rough. It didn't have any music. We hadn't even scored the film yet. It was just like this very quiet, kind of clunky cut, in my opinion. And he, re- Jeremy, really wanted to submit it. He was like, let's go ahead and submit it to uh, Sundance this year and just throw it out in the rain. I was like, dude, it's not even done. Let's just wait. But he went ahead and he submitted the film. And I was very angry with him. I was like, oh, it's not putting your best foot forward. And you hear about works in progress getting submitted. And it happens all the time. Um, but I felt that we were not even close to it. Like, it was worse than a rough cut, in my opinion. And then November rolls around. Um, and we get a call. You know, I got a call from Trevor Groth, uh, who was the senior programmer at the time at the festival. And now he's the director of programming. But he called me and we were driving up to thanksgiving and it, you know i had like a cricket cell phone that only worked within like 20 miles of salt lake so i'm glad he called me when it was within you know range and um he said yeah you got into the festival and it was like the best phone call i've ever received <laughs> wow it was awesome so yeah i mean it was it was and i never thought that we would get in and he's like yeah you're in and you're in competition and i mean it was so then at that point, it was a race to finish the film, as it is with most filmmakers that, that get that phone call. So just to go back to my initial question on like the dream of like making this film and getting into Sundance, it sounds like this, it all kind of just you know happened. But what were you hoping? What was the best case scenario for this film? Yeah. For you? Did, you, did you think you're, you were going to become famous as a result of it? You know, I mean, g- going back, I... Uh, just in making the film, I hope that, oh, maybe I can get into a festival somewhere and maybe if we're really lucky, we could sell it and it might end up on a cable channel at midnight somewhere, somehow, and maybe I can get an agent out of it and it'll be a stepping stone for me. I never in my wildest dreams imagined, you know, the just, you know, the, the life it would take on, um, yeah as people discovered the film and and just the run that it that it would have um you know when when we were shooting the film um you know we were we a ton of the movie takes place in high school and so we had a bunch of local kids play extras and i remember we were shooting there's a scene in the hallway i can't even remember what it was it might have been when napoleon is talking to pedro about nunchuck skills bow hunting skills and a couple of the kids the extras at the high school um like after we were done shooting that scene we broke for lunch and they were like quoting the film or quoting (laughs) or like repeating that scene to each other and i was like wow well maybe that's a good sign i hope that's a good sign yeah i mean but even leading up to Sundance, like we hadn't screened the film for anybody. Like, like we hadn't like thrown people into a theater and, you know, like we didn't, I, I truthfully, I, I mean, I was dry heaving before the premiere. <laughs> I was like, yeah. it's either going to, they're either going to get the film or it's going to be crickets and I'm one and done. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but we were, you know, I think the audiences up at Sundance are the best audiences in the world. And, and, um, you know, it, from the opening frame and, and, you know, when we first screened, we did not have the opening title sequence with all the food that, that came after right. the film was bought. 
So literally it went from like a black screen to Napoleon standing in front of his house with a trapper keeper. And <laughs> people started like laughing immediately. Like, like they, they just, they got it, you know? And, and That's um, great. I, I remember at that first screening, um, you know, they were laughing and the whole way through, but people started clapping and cheering when Napoleon, when it was in his brown thrift store suit, holding a corsage, walking down the street in slow motion. And at that point, I looked to my wife, Jerusha, who co-wrote the film with me and said, I think we're going to be able to sell it, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it was, it was a magical moment, you know, like, yeah, it was, uh, it was really special. Yeah. That, oh, man, what a relief that must have been. How oh, many yeah, times did sure. it play at Sundance? You know, I think competition films play like six or seven times. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because the, the distributors, do they usually come to you right after that first screening or did it take some yeah, time? Yeah, so before? we had, we had um, John Sloss. He was representing the film uh, and he's, you know, legendary for all, all you know most of the big sales that have happened up at sundance he's he's been involved in and um so he'd heard about the film i think through a programmer at either slam dance or sundance and then called us directly and asked us if, we could, if he could rep the film and we googled him and we were like yeah yeah that'd be great um <laughs> yeah. wow. so he he you know he was aware of all you know John and his team, they're called, have a company called Synetic Media. And they had, um, they were aware of every single acquisitions executive that was there at the screening okay. you know, of all the studios. And they knew that he was repping it. And so they had him on speed dial and, you know, could call or text him. But he was MIA like the last 30 minutes of, of the film, which is kind of his little technique to stress everybody out because they, they, you know, they're looking back over their shoulder to see if he's still there or if he's out making a deal already. And he, he told us, he's like, I'm going to be gone the last 30 minutes. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of my thing. I'm like, that's cool. Um, but it was super fun. And so we didn't even, you know, it, it played, it premiered late Saturday night. And then we had another screening the next morning on Sunday. And we had all of our, our meetings that next morning and Fox searchlight was the first meeting that we had. And the cool thing about searchlight is Peter Rice was running the company at the time. And, you know, they had Steve Galula and Nancy Utley and just their whole team of people. It wasn't just an acquisitions exec, but the whole team that would be releasing the film had all seen it and were all there. And Peter Rice was like, you know, um, I thought the film was absolutely joyful. And, <laughs> if we don't have a deal in the next two hours, we're not coming back for it. And they were at the top of my list of people to release it because they had done such an amazing job with films that didn't have stars in them and were able to release them and market them in a way where they were very successful. And, and, um, and so I was, their track record up to that point was really, really great. And so we said, all right. And so we, we, we made a deal and, yeah, the rest is history. So did your life completely change, like, right after that? Not really right after that. I mean, you know, I guess one of the cool things that happened is we were able to get an agent. And so we, we'd met with a bunch of different agents up at the festival and then didn't make a decision up there at all, but but waited. And, and a bunch of them flew out to Utah for a couple of 
weeks after that. And then we, you know, made our decision and ended up signing with UTA and, and yeah, it was, it was great. So that, that was all exciting. Um, but after we sold it, I still, you know, I'd heard horror stories of people that made a great deal up at Sundance and then their film for one reason or another got shelved and didn't get released or, you know, and so I, that was always lurking in the back of my mind. Could that happen to this film? And it was a very successful and popular fan favorite of the festival that year, but still, you know, I just didn't know. And then as spring rolled around that year, they were like, you know, we've got a game plan for this film. And I think it was truly one of the last grassroots marketing campaigns that they did because it was before Facebook. It was before Twitter. I think MySpace was just barely kind of starting. It was, you know, 2004. Um, And so they, they, they said, Hey, we're going to just play the, we're going to screen this film at different cities throughout the U S and screen it for free. And we're going to hand out like vote for Pedro t-shirts and chapstick and, you know, glamor shots of Kip and Napoleon and just give this stuff out for free. (laughs) And so people came out and drove. So by the time the film actually was released, there was like a true word of mouth about the film. Um, which isn't something that I don't think any studios do anymore. They're just like, ah, we, yeah. we, 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 we'd, ra- we'd rather just like rely on Twitter or Facebook or hope that something goes viral. But and the internet's an ocean of so many distractions. It's tough to like be heard, I think, sometimes. Yeah. So anyway, but, oh, but, it, yeah. but it was cool. That's how I saw the movie because um, a friend of mine had – went to a screening, one of the free screenings, and then they were doing another free screening. He's like, you have to come with me and see see this movie. It's so good. And so then we went and saw the second free screening. And then, yeah, like the word of mouth just got out. And then it just seemed like everyone knew about that movie when it came out. Right, right, right. Where where were you? What city were you in when you saw it? San Francisco. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I did, went to a free screening. I think I paid for it. But it was like, it was like, I was, I think I was still in high school and everybody was talking about this movie. Like, everybody. It was the thing. And so it was like, you had to go see it, you know? I just remember how big it was. It was, like, everywhere. It, you know, Napoleon Dynamite dolls, like, in supermarkets. Like, <laughs> balloons everywhere. Like, it just, it was such a phenomena, you know? And, yeah, like, you don't really see that kind of thing, especially for an indie movie. Like, you'll see it for superheroes and alien movies and everything like that, but, like, like what's the last Sundance darling that you saw like a huge marketing campaign for? Like I couldn't even remember any besides yours. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah no, it's super funny. You know, my, my wife, Jerusha, she was also the costume designer on Napoleon. And um, I think we had a budget of like a thousand dollars to like get all the wardrobe sorted out for every character. And so she hit it, you know, she was going to all the different, um, thrift stores in Utah and Idaho and just assembling whatever we could find. And, and um, I remember like the morning that we were shooting the scene where Napoleon's wearing the vote for Pedro shirt and getting on the bus and going to the school assembly. Um, she'd found like this ringer tea and literally some iron on letters in my mom's basement. She, she was like, eh, it seems like he might've like made his own shirt. And little did we know at the time, like we should have held onto the rights of that thing. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but it's also you know also the easiest shirt to like create. Yeah, right. 
at this point, you have the Sundance success. Agents are coming out to meet you in Utah. Um, did you get any pressure to move to L.A. or did you ever move to L.A. or did you always just stay in Utah? No, you know, it's such a short flight. It's like only like an hour and 20 minutes. And, you know, we have both of us have family in Idaho and in Utah. And um, so, you know, we just like the outdoors, like the mountains out here. And, you know, nobody ever pressured us to move out there. I think for a lot of people, that's a natural step to take. But for I, it's such a short flight. I, I make it all the time. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. I mean, I'm out there a ton. It's it's ho- hopeful for uh, for us because we both love living in the Bay Area in San Francisco, and it's a short flight to LA from here too, obviously. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, as being nobodies who have not made features and have not had the Sundance successes, we get a lot of um, advice and pressure from our peers that we should move to LA. You know, but we're just trying to make our movies here. So I don't know. I guess maybe when you have the huge success, it's like. You know, you can do whatever you want, but uh, I don't know. I was I was just curious if that was like a thing even for you. But I guess it sounds like once you have that, you know, you're all good. Right. You know, I, I, I do think, though, like um, buddies of mine that I went to film school with, the ones that are still working in the industry or have jobs in the industry all did take that step and move out to L.A. and grind it out for a couple of years until they were able to arrive at the position that they were dreaming of. Um, And so I know I think that there is a lot to that just because you're there. But um, well, I want to fast forward to your life now. Um, But before we do, Ulrich, is there anything that you want to talk about? I was going to say the same thing. Let's Let's fast forward. Let's do it. Yes. So fast forward. It's been 12 years. Yeah. 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 um, what, What does your life look like now? So, um, I have a crap ton of kids. Have, <laughs> <laughs> we have, uh, gosh, I've got a boy and a girl. And then, and then we adopted two babies. We weren't planning on adopting two, but, um, we have, we adopted a little boy with down syndrome from Bulgaria, like three years ago. And then, um, we, domestically adopted uh, a little girl who's African-American. And um, so we have a big, it's a big party over here, man. So I, I guess that, that, that's a, that's at the forefront of my life. Um, yep. But, uh, and you're still living in we, Salt Lake, yeah, yeah. Utah. Yep. We live in Salt Lake and um, yeah, just been super busy. I, I um, uh, last year, did produced and directed a uh, time travel comedy for Fox called Making History um, with mm-hmm. Phil Lord and Chris Miller's company. Um, Goldie Sharp is the uh, creator of that show, an amazing, hilarious guy. Um, so spent most of last year doing television. Um, last year we wrote two animated features, one um for Paramount and Nickelodeon, it's a like a '90s Nicktoons film, which was super fun. But it's it's a super it's a it's a hybrid film, you know, animation and live action. Um, so we spent last year writing that, um, and then also uh, an animated film, a, an original Western idea that we had uh, for Leica Portland. They're just an amazing group of artists out there. So um, yeah, and then. 
we literally just finished that draft or a second draft of that last week. So. Nice. The, I know you direct commercials, obviously, because we work together at yeah. Tostitos. Yep. But um, is that something that you do because you like doing it? Or are you doing that as part of like the way that you sustain yourself financially? Um, I love doing it. It's super fun, man. Uh, it's great because you're able to work with, I mean, amazingly talented, creative people. Um, also able to work with new crew people, cinematographers, production designers, and, you know, also actors. So I'm, I'm always kind of keeping a log of people that I'm excited to work with that I've worked with in commercials that I could work with on a film or a television series or, or whatever. Um, so I, I love it. I think it's, it's a super fun way to like be creative in between feature or television projects. Yeah. Do you, could you make a living just as a director of feature films and television? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't need commercials. You like them. I like That's them. That's cool. I like them. Yeah. Yep. Um, I'm curious on how, like, so you're saying you're writing these movies this last year, but um, like, especially in the, you know, uh, example of Masterminds, like, how did that movie come about? Was that something that you sought sought after yourself and 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 found and attached yourself to, or was that a project that found you? Like, how did how did you get on that movie? You know, I, I first was pitched the project uh, by Lauren Michaels' company, um, and it was years ago. It was probably like in two thousand seven or something, and you know, it's a true story of a heist that happened in North Carolina um, in 1997. And I'd rem- I remembered it when it happened. I was in high school and remember seeing the 2020. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Uh, specials about it and loved the story. And, um, you know, I wasn't available at the time when it was pitched to me, but, you know, I want to say in... 2013 um i just remembered how much i loved it and so i went and had a meeting with him again and yeah the project kind of started with them and then uh two buddies of mine that i went to film school with chris bowman and hubble palmer um i brought the project to them and i didn't have time to write it but was super close with them and and we share very similar comedic sensibilities and, and so they took a stab at the script and, and originally it was going to happen at Paramount. Um, but Paramount ended up doing this pain and gain movie for Michael Bay. Oh yeah. Oh, like, oh, yeah. It's kind of a true story thing. And, and so then they said, Hey, but you can take it elsewhere. And then relativity wanted it. And so we ended up doing it there. Um, which, you know, it was an interesting experience because they went, bankrupt like right before the film was supposed to be released and there are all kinds of wackadoodle things that happened but um the cast was amazing and and working with lauren michaels and john goldwyn and aaron david was amazing you know on the producing side 
so yeah but it was um yeah it was it was interesting just because it was the timing of working with that particular studio was pretty awful yeah what happens when a a studio goes bankrupt when your movie's finished and waiting to be released where does it go uh it just sits there um you know there i mean so much of the bankruptcy proceedings were in the press you know you could read about it in the trick in you know in, in the trades and whatever and um yeah, it just it sat there. Nobody could tell anybody anything because it was just tied up as an asset. Do they sell them off at some point, to, like to other studios, to like to get money? So yeah, that does happen. Um, but yeah, it was just messy. They had so many messy deals, and at one point, Netflix was like, "Hey, we're going to release it because you had a deal with us, and and we're going to go ahead and do it." And they said, "No, no, 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 no," and and then they, I don't know what happened, but they ended up being able to release the film, you know, cause I don't know, they kind of somehow scrounge enough money together to still have a company and be able to release it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that it got a release. It would have sucked if you would have put all that time and energy. Into oh yeah, for no sure. It. For sure. But it's weird too. Cause you know, they were playing trailers like in the summer of 2015, <laughs> like it's going to be out in you know July. Right. I can't remember what the release date was and then it just never comes out so to kind of have this stuttery beginning and then have it disappear and come back i think it just it really messes with uh, audiences not really knowing when it's supposed to be out there yeah. yeah well i saw it on vod and i watched this weekend so i'm sure people are finding it and uh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. especially with such an awesome cast and a fun story and you know, the trailer is awesome. Like, I, I saw the trailer. I think I saw it when it first came out, and then I saw it again cool. the the second time they aired it, and I was like, oh, this looks sweet. Like, I want to see this movie. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. I want to know about the difficulty of getting a movie made. Do you find that it was easier to get a movie made in 2004, 2005 than it is now? Um, was it easier, like, off the tail end of Napoleon Dynamite? Or are you still finding that it's easier because you had the success of Napoleon Dynamite? Or is it all just kind of based on the last film that you, you directed? You know, it, it. I mean, I think all of those things. I think in general, especially for comedies, you're just not... They're not making comedies like they were in the early 2000s. Studios aren't. Um, I think independently, it's it's happening all the time. But um, I think studios are making less films and they're making films that play globally. Um, and the films that play globally are, you know, big action films, um, yeah. you know, the Fast and the Furious franchise or Marvel stuff or Disney remaking their entire catalog. You know, their animation catalog is live action films like, uh, you know, so you're... The studios are, it feels like they're focusing on those things or, you know, genre, you know, I think horror genre plays globally great. I think comedy is so specific culturally to where, you know, where you're living as to, you know, it's going to play funny in a specific way nationally or, or otherwise. So I, it, you do, you know, you're just not seeing studios do a ton of comedies. Um, hmm. And so, yeah. So you're saying it's hard. It's hard to. Oh make no, 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 for sure. I think it's a lot harder to make a comedy um, than it was before. Definitely. 
And all every movie that you've done since Nacho Libre has been with a studio. Is that right? Um, yeah. So Gentleman Broncos we did with Fox Searchlight. So that was a studio thing. Um, uh, this film that we had up at Senate a couple years ago, Don Verdeen, we did independently, yeah. and then before oh, okay. before the festival, we sold it to Lionsgate. They, I mean, they they came and visited the set and wanted it. You know, even before. Um, you know, we'd gotten into Sundance. So, so yeah, so that was kind of like a, a pre-sell. That's cool. Is there, do you feel like there's a difference making a movie independently versus with a studio? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> How yeah. So? Well, just you, you can do whatever you want depending on what your investors demand. Um, and generally it's just, you know, you're, you're making your film for a price and, um, you know, I think the trade-off is creative control. And, and um, so th- you're not having, like, multiple conference calls about the meaning of somebody's ankle boots or something ridiculous, <laughs> you know, with, with studio executives. <laughs> like, how does this apply to his arc? And what's the meaning of, of that? And that sounds like commercials. <laughs> oh, totally. Absolutely. Like, ad nauseum. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so you just don't have that kind of a headache. You still have all the headaches that come with being responsible for a film and trying to get everything you need. I mean, those, those stresses don't go away, but I think a lot of the, you know, the nonsense that's wasted in trying to explain why you're doing certain things to everybody, like not having to waste time with that is a great relief. Right. It sounds like you have to get other people on board before you can make a creative decision. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, doing a studio thing or anything on television. I'm just curious about the independent production. Like, in that case, did you find a production company to partner with? Or did were you able to find investors yourself? Or did you partner with a producer? Like, how, how- Yeah, just some, you know, friend, you know buddies of mine um, that had done independent films friend of mine named Dave Hunter introduced me to Grant Anderson um, who had been, you know, like he was one of the financiers and producers on, um, what was that? Mark Wahlberg, Ben Foster, uh, Lone uh, Survivor, Lone Survivor. Okay. So like, yeah. So he'd done like that film and he recently did Martin Scorsese's latest film, um, you know, putting together the financing for it and, Anyway, yes, yeah, so we got him the script of John Verdine, and he came board as a, you know, as a producer and, and just an amazing producer. Did you try to bring Don Verdine to the studios? No, 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 no. Didn't even bother with it because I just—it's such a slow process. You know what I mean? Like it's such a slow mm-hmm. process. If you can make a film independently, do it that way because you just need one person to go. Yeah, I want to do it. That's it. And if mm-hmm. it's a studio, great. Um, but if it's an investor, just go that route, you know, but then you end up, I mean, but they have to realize that they're just throwing money under the fire because you cannot guarantee that you're going to sell that film. Right. You know, I've had filmmaker friends get into trouble where I think their investors were promised a bill of goods, meaning that they, you know, that, yeah, you know, we're, we're going to sell it and get this amount of money and they can't control people that, you know, are that are going to like the film and want to pay money for it and buy it. Um, that, that's the one thing yeah. you not guarantee. 
That's for sure. I mean, that's where we're at. Like, we we want to raise money for our first features, but at the same time, we know that we we don't have a guaranteed way of making that money back. <laughs> right, 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 right. Like, how do how do you put a business plan together when you can't guarantee money back? Right. Yeah. It's tough. You just need somebody that's so freaking rich they don't give a crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's it's funny it's like i'm writing like a business plan or a pitch book now and like trying to do the wording where it's like you know doing the comparisons and you know just like saying oh well here's the all the different like routes we're gonna take the movie to like you know get a return on the investment but it's like you can't promise like anything and they're all just like you know just attempts so it's not like, you know, an investor looks at it and just like, what, what, what? So I'm basically burning money to you now. That's what I'm doing. It's yeah, like- yeah. Yeah. I've had friends do presentations doing like genre comparables where they'll be like, Lord of the Rings made a billion dollars worldwide. If we can tap into 0.001% of that, we're <laughs> right. going to be loaded. And they make like some low budget dragon movie that, <laughs> like a sci-fi channel like 1997 sci-fi channel dragon movie yeah uh, which are rad i'm not bagging on those yeah i'd, I'd love to direct something like that that'd be awesome <laughs> <laughs> um i i got well here's here's it's sort of a more of a general question but like you know what is like the biggest thing that you struggle with in um getting a movie made um oh man biggest thing it, i mean it, it does just boil down to getting the money to just i mean the struggle is finding that one person that says yes and write you a check that that that's the hardest part i think um and if you're trying to do something original it's harder because there's if you're making something original there's nothing generally that's going to be out there to compare it to um and so the conversation is like, well, is this, you know, see, I mean, because everybody loves the shorthand of being able to go, you know, this is, this is Little Miss Sunshine meets Alien, or I don't know. And they go, <laughs> okay, yeah, those both made money. Um, people love that. But I think it's harder for people that are going out there with original scripts and original ideas to get things funded, which is a tragedy. But... I also think that um, there aren't a lot of excuses anymore for filmmakers to say, oh, I couldn't get this made because I feel like the technology is so affordable to be able to go out and make a film. Like you hear about that movie Tangerine that was shot on an iPhone, like the whole thing was shot on an iPhone. And it's like that guy wasn't going to wait around for permission from somebody to go make their film. He just went out and did it. And I'm, always inspired by stories like that even now like i don't have to you know i mean even though it's a struggle i i, I generally can get a film made when i've you know just I, I think the success of napoleon or whatever people always go oh you know maybe you know and so it's it hasn't been hard and we've been fortunate to be able to get things funded but at the end of the day it's like i'm i'm inspired by guys that go out and just do it for no money and have written something that they can go out and shoot today on their iPhone um, that isn't outside of their resources, but they've got a compelling, important story to tell and they just go do it. I, I love 
that approach to filmmaking because I think for so long it's been this art form that costs so much money to be able to do. But you see guys like Noah Baumbach that are going out and making um, that Francis Hoff film for like no money. Like he just right. boiled down his crew to the bare essentials and just went out and made a film. And even like the Duplass brothers continue, right. they've got like this cottage industry of going out and making these films that cost almost nothing, but they're taking these original stories and they're, they're just not asking for permission from somebody to go do it. And I love that attitude. Do you put yourself in that category with Napoleon dynamite? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like, um, you know, it was funny. We did, we, one of our producers had gone to USC and went through their film program and knew somebody that was an executive, like a development exec at Fox Searchlight. And before we even started shooting, he's like, I'm just going to give them the script. And they read it and they're like, yeah, it's a pass for us. We didn't really get it. <laughs> and lo and behold, they're the first ones to buy it when it, you know, when, when it came out. I mean, had you done that movie now rather than then, it probably wouldn't have cost you four hundred thousand, right? Because you, no. you had to shoot on film back no. then. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we shot on film. Panavision gave us a great deal on some camera bodies, and then Kodak as well under their because we were film students when we made the film, and so we qualified mm -hmm. for their student film stock program or whatever, and, and we got a great deal on some film stock that was about to like be discontinued um yeah so we we shot on film which was amazing but yeah yeah i mean we probably would have shot it on like a canon 5d or something yeah, if we'd right. done it now but the the thing just to challenge what you're saying like i mean we we both that's what we talk about all the time on the podcast is like ask don't ask for for, for permission just go out and make your thing you know and we're trying to do that ourselves but like you know, sometimes it can get difficult. Well, it's obviously really hard to write a movie that can be shot in that way. And especially within like the sci-fi horror genres where like you want to do things that have effects and stuff. But I mean, it's still no excuse. I just making excuses. Like there is no real excuse. Like we just need to go out and make our movies however we can. Well, it's also looking for the opportunity. I think the, the, the thing that I heard from Jared was like he made his short film. He submitted to Slam Dance. And then at Slam Dance, it seemed like some opportunities came out of that to like make Napoleon. So, right. It's like you, it's not like it. I guess you need to like wait for those opportunities, look for those opportunities. And then when they, they come, like strike and take them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, oh, keep going. Sorry. I was just going to say that those opportunities aren't going to happen for everybody. You know, like, like me and you, like we've both made multiple short films, like submitted them to film festivals, gotten into some good ones, but like, you know, we both haven't gotten funding um, out of being at film festivals, you know, and I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners um, haven't had that experience. So, you know, I guess you just have no. to keep on going, right? But I'm I'm holding out hope that some one day somebody's going to see Loan online and they're going to be like, oh my god, this would make a, an amazing feature. And then they'll write me an email and say, I want to make this into a feature. I have half a million dollars. Let's do it. And then I'm like, okay, I have a script, which I don't. But then I'm just going to pretend that I do and then write it over that weekend. Right. Smart. That's the dream, right? That, 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 That's a dream. That just falls yeah. into like the getting into Sundance, you know, winning the totally. golden ticket sort of category of things that you know is is probably not going to happen 
<laughs> but you have to I think you have to hold on to that dream because otherwise all you're doing is just accepting that you're going to be making films the way that we're doing now. We just we make it when we can. We make it with the resources we have and we put them out there and that's it. We would all love to be where Jared's at where he can <laughs> you know he can tap into money and resources that we don't have. You're right. It's not going to happen for most of us. Um, but that doesn't doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep making movies. Totally. I, I know so many people that get, you know, I, I, I have a friend that um, had done a short film that I went to film school with and it got into Sundance. It, it played like in their shorts program. And, you know, I think he was able to get a manager from that. And um, But things didn't just like materialize for him immediately. You know what I mean? He's still working at, you know, getting his next, you know, big project off the ground. And yeah, he's made films. He's made small, like, you know, independent films since then. Um, but yeah, you, it, it's just something you just have to keep working toward. And I think... Um, well, let me ask you this, yeah. Jared. Why do you think it happened to you? Do you think you're just more talented than everyone else? Or it's because <laughs> you you approach storytelling from a different perspective? Or do you think luck has something to do with it? I think, a t- like, I think, what, it's, what is I think it's everything. It's everything. I mean, I think had we submitted Napoleon a year later, and I don't even know what played, I can't even remember what played at the festival a year later. Like there's a possibility that we maybe wouldn't have gotten in, you know, like if it didn't fit the program that they were creating for the festival that year, um, we could have gotten into slam dance oh, we did get accepted into slam dance they wanted it to be the opening night film and we hadn't heard from sundance yet and we almost went well we're probably not in sundance and they were kind of giving us a deadline we could have gone to slam dance and maybe nobody ever would have yep. seen the film like maybe fox mm-hmm. wouldn't have gone to see the film there so i mean there, there's so many things so many stars that have to align um for things to happen yeah but um, do you think that the success of that film also had to do with the way it was marketed or do you think that it would have caught fire no matter where it ended up no i think it i mean the way it was marketed it brought the film to the audience you know what i mean it brought the film to the people i think it you know um you look at films like and i'm the you know like office space which was a fox yeah. film which is a hilarious film that was released in like two theaters. And I have no idea why it got dumped like that or what the story was, but people discovered that film like two or three years later by renting it at their local blockbuster. You know what I mean? And and then it caught, you know, so potentially something like that could have happened with Napoleon if it wasn't marketed properly. You know what I mean? Um, you know, like our, our film Gentleman Broncos, which was a Fox Searchlight thing, it got like zero marketing. It, it came toward the end of the year where they had some, you know, bigger films that they put a lot of money behind the market during the Oscar race and like things weren't panning out. So they just were like, we're not going to spend any more money. You know, it doesn't look good on our record books. Like, to keep spinning uh, this is a super weird movie and that's one for whatever reason has like people are discovering and there's like rabid fans for that weird movie um yeah. that you know people have discovered it well after the fact years after the fact um you know i think 
had it been marketed, it probably would have found that audience soon, but instead it's years later. Yeah. Like, so you're in this wonderful place, like you're, you're able to get movies made. Um, and a lot of it is due to the success of Napoleon Dynamite. What, what I'm wondering is, is from your vantage point, do you see filmmakers um, getting to the place of being able to make movies regularly without a Napoleon Dynamite kind of thing? in their in their career or in their past or does does every successful filmmaker that you see making movies do they all have their like you know ace in the hole that got them where they are no i i mean i i, th- I think that there's no rules you know like there's no um it's funny like before i made napoleon you know when i was in high school i i, I knew that i wanted to be involved in in filmmaking and my parents had gone to, to high school with uh, a cinematographer, and he he shot a lot of those like IMAX films that you see at national parks and stuff like that. And so yeah. every every summer I would go intern with him. So like from the time I was fourteen, I would go be a part of his camera crew, and started to load film and you know marker doing the clapper and everything. And it gave me a lot of like awesome production experience. And I would you know I would chat people's ears off like what advice do you have for me as a filmmaker? And they were always like, get out of the business. It sucks. You won't be able to provide (laughs) like all the advice was negative that I got from everybody. And yeah. And I think that there's some truth to it. It's a really, really hard business, but the thing that you learn, like, you know, and, and when I was in college, I would read the stories of, I mean, there's a gazillion books out there that interview, every filmmaker under the sun and they tell their story of how they became a director, like what, what their story was leading up to it. And everybody had a completely different story. Some people went to film school. Some people didn't, some people had like a hit film out of the gate. Others didn't, you know? Um, And I think that it's, it's just, you, but, but I do think that the common thread is that they didn't, wait for permission from other people to go make a film. Like, mm. you know, you look at the Coen brothers, they, um, they didn't wait for, they kind of created their opportunity to make blood simple. They went out, cut like a trailer together and took it around and projected this little film trailer for blood simple <laughs> to a bunch of wealthy dentists and like, you know, pulled money together for like, they went out and created their opportunity. They, they weren't just like, didn't come out of film school and were sitting on their hands waiting for someone to hire them, which a lot of people do thinking that, you know, their prestigious degree from wherever they went to, is just going to get them hired. And, and you get hired based on the merits of your work. You know, it has to speak for itself. And, you know, they went out and made blood simple and then, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. What would you say to a filmmaker though, that does the Coen brothers things They go, they raise the money, they make a blood simple, but then no one cares about it. Do you think that they should just go do it again? Or yeah, should, or... absolutely. Absolutely. Like keep, keep at it. And I, and I, I don't have any examples off the top of my head. Um, you know, one film that I r- really love, uh, was blue ruined. Oh yeah. Oh Yeah. I'm forgetting the name of the director, but he did green. Jeremy Saulnier. Yes, yeah. that dude. And We're that a big guy, fans. He was like he was like a cameraman, um, doing low budge horror films, and you know he. I think that movie cost two or three hundred thousand dollars. Blue Ruin, I think. And it's funny, like they submitted that film to Sundance, 
and it didn't get in. And it was, you know, again, I think it was like a work in progress. It was a, you know, I don't know how rough it was, but it didn't get in. So they like kept editing the movie for like a whole other year and, and finally finished it. And then it gets into Cannes and wins awards up at Cannes. And it's like, okay, you know, and that was with, you know, I can't imagine how deflating it would be. A film that ended up being that good, getting into Sun, you know, being submitted to Sundance and getting rejected. Um, and then going on to, to win awards at Cannes. Um, but he said he could have given up, you know what I mean? And I, and I don't know the guy at all, but I know a lot of people that would have given up that would have just gone, oh man, our film blows, forget it, pull the plug, I quit, I'm tapping out. <laughs> That's people, me right there. <laughs> yeah, people do that, but it's like, yeah, you know, you just you never know. gotta stay with it, man. Well, that's really encouraging because I didn't know that part of the story. And, um, you know, you, you do hear about like, you know, unfinished films, work in progress is getting like accepted into big film festivals and like, you know, being the big break for the filmmaker or whatever. Um, and, and I spent like, I guess it was like two years ago, I was submitting a work and cut progress to film festivals and like no one got back to me at all or anything. So I just was like, you know, don't do that. Like that's just. You should just make the movie like like you like take the advice that you gave yourself back when you made Napoleon Dynamite and just, you know, get it right. But I mean, obviously, that was what you did was the right thing, uh, just submitting it. But um, <laughs> but uh, but anyways, I mean, but it's nice to hear that, like the Blue Ruin guys went through that 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 experience, but they just didn't give up and they they finished it the right way. Right, right, um, right. Well, I want to ask, like, the filmmaking is really tough, and you've been doing it now for 12 years. Is there any moments in your life where you just wonder if this is really the path that you should have gone down, that you regret it at all? Or are you still just as in love with film now as you were when you started? Oh, man, I'm as in love with it as when I started. I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, every new story, every new idea is an adventure, and there's such a huge component of the unknown that goes, you know, however well you prepare a film, whatever your vision of it is, as you're going into the pre-production process, the level of unknown that goes into filmmaking is very exciting and very like um, exhilarating. And I think uh, that's why people, I mean, that's why I keep going back, you know, it's, it's, it's rad. And I, and I think too, like, you learn from the mistakes that, that you make along the way. You learn from your successes along the way. And hopefully that works toward better movies. What's the biggest mistake that you've made along the way? Oh my gosh. Or the thing that you regret the most? Um, what do I regret the most? Great. I mean, I feel like there's crap with each film that I've done that I've regretted, um, <laughs> you know, and a lot of it boils down to, yeah, I don't know. So uh, on each film, are you disappointed with at least one thing? In oh it? yeah. Or, a, a, or do you walk away going, man, I'm awesome. I'm no, like the best. No, I don't know of any director. I mean, Michael Bay. I don't know. No, no, no. But, but, but like, I don't know how anybody can watch their film and go, yeah, really hit that one out of the park because you <laughs> even if even if people like it and and love yeah. it or and praise it or whatever it's always going to be a little bit different than how you first imagined it when you were writing it just right that's just the nature of the beast like you know and so you're always 
like for me, I always compare it to like the first time I had an idea for a line of dialogue or the first time I heard it in my head. And maybe like an actor didn't quite ever get to the level that I wanted for like maximum impact, you know, for comedic impact or whatever. Um, right. Inflection is very important to me just in the way that I write and think. And so that happens all the time. I'll be like, oh, I wish he could have been more breathy with that line and, right. or whatever. You know what I mean? And, and so, you know, films are full of those kind of moments, I think, as a director when you're watching it. Yeah, but I think the the difference between what you're t- what you're talking about and the times when I feel like I'm disappointed with the the way things turned out because they didn't turn out as good as I thought they would in my head is I feel like I'm always blaming myself. Like it's my fault as a director that I didn't do this or that or I didn't give the actor the right direction or I didn't choose the right actor or you know the, I don't know why I'm always blaming myself but I think it's probably unhealthy to do that and it's probably better just to chalk it up to like, well, that's just filmmaking. You can't control everything. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Yep. I do like the idea that like as the director, you are responsible for everything that's up on screen, you know, and that like whether or not it's like taking responsibility for it, I think is, I don't know, it's important to me, but I mean, I I also think that you can't really beat yourself up over it because, you know, like, nothing's gonna be perfect to you ever right like i I, like jared was saying like who who walks away from the movie being like that was perfect like i bet scorsese walked away from goodfellas feeling like you know that he made all these mistakes or things weren't right or whatever but like you know to like everybody that thinks that's the greatest movie ever but i'm sure he doesn't feel that way so Sure, sure i don't know i just feel like that's it just seems like it's really natural to feel that way and that it's normal for us to like look at our movies and cringe and be like, I can't believe I did that, or why did I make this movie, whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I think, yeah, Jared's stuff is so performance-based, I can definitely see that, especially you being the writer of a lot of your stuff, that you hear it in a certain way, delivered in a certain way, but you are at the mercy of an actor, and an actor's sensibilities and, and the way that they perform, that you can't get you can't make them act exactly the way that you see the line in your head yeah. unless you want to do like you could do a one-man show and you could play all the parts though <laughs> right. you could always do that no I, i've i've gotten in trouble with line readings before but it's it's, it's my <laughs> go-to when when you're just not getting there <laughs> oh yeah. really and, and they you know mo- people that i work with don't tend to have egos they know that it's just the way that it works sometimes and it's fine I'm, I'm, I just, cause you just mentioned that. And this is actually something I don't know if we've, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before. It's like, you hear that a lot. Like, oh, it's terrible. Like never give a line reading to an actor. Like that's like the, the biggest thing you can't do. But then I've heard actors say that they like it and other directors do it. But is that something that you do sometimes or are you trying not to do it or? Yeah, no. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, the way that I write, I just have an ear for mimicry. And so when, when I'm writing, I have to know exactly how the character is going to sound. So if I know already the actor that might play that part, um, I'll write things to that kind of cadence and inflection and, you know, delivery. But, um, yeah, but I, but I, yeah, I mean, most of Napoleon was line readings. Um, because I didn't know how else to do it. <laughs> so, anyway. Well, yeah. From just from talking to you for an hour, I can already I can already imagine that in my head, just from the way that you talk. That I, that that's how it went. But 
I mean, I don't know. Just to harp on this a little bit more, like, do some actors are some actors okay with it, or are all actors not okay with it? Like, no, 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 no. They're they're. Uh, well, I mean, I only know. If, I mean, the ones that I've worked with, they're they're fine because they know that that's just my personality, and it's not like calling out their level of performance or anything. It's just a way to communicate quickly sometimes. And I I've I don't do it all the time, but. If there is a line that just isn't getting enough comedic juice to it and can be helped with with it, you know, then I'll do it. But but I try not to. I've 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 tried to like get better and not do it all the time. Just out of respect. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Interesting. Well, I have one big last question, but before I do, like I have Arik, a big last question also, but I, I I'm wondering if your big last question is similar to my big last question, so I'll, I'll let you ask it first, <laughs> and then if it's not, then I'll ask mine. Okay. I'm wondering that at this point in your career, are you like super confident that you can get movies made, or do you always still have that fear that your career might end at any moment? I think I think that's everybody in the entertainment business's fear, without question. Because <laughs> yeah, you, there's see. not a lot that anybody can do to control it, whether you're an actor or director or compo- composer. You know, I think everybody. There's always that looming over you that, oh man, like, you know, you, there's this pressure, I think, to constantly stay busy, you know what I mean? And to constantly be developing something. Because you, you know, I think for me as a writer director, I'm not waiting around for like my agent to send me a script. It's like, we, we've always, you know, Mm -hmm. we've always got ideas. We're constantly writing and writing multiple things at any given time not knowing if a studio is going to be, yeah, we're going to green light that one. That's what we want to do next. So it's, you know, I think the pressure to create your own work is constant. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I I don't think at any point anybody can sit back and go, yep, I'm just, I'm good now, bro. Just wait for the next (laughs) gig to roll in. Wait for the next sweet deal. Yeah, so I guess to that point, do you feel like you're constantly hustling for the next job? You're not just like sitting back and letting things come to you. Like you have to kind no, of work I, to make it happen. No, I, we're always writing, Jerusha and I, every day. Like the moment our kids, you know, we drop them off at school at 8.30 and we're back. By 9.30, we're in the office and we're writing until they come home at 3. So, I mean, it's, wow. it's you know, I think that's that's. But that's most people that I know, like even, mm-hmm. you know, like TV writers, it's like they're, you know, when they're not working on a show, it's like they're working on the next pilot that they're going to try and go pitch. You know what I mean? For for that next TV se- uh, season. Nah, that's awesome. I mean, I think that's that's everybody. Um, I I had a quick question just about the writing process, and it's not my final question. I I hope I don't, do you have time for? Yeah, yeah, quick? absolutely. Okay, cool. So, when you write with your wife, um, what's your writing process like? Do you guys um, are you writing on different projects at the same time? Or are you taking different pages? Like, how do you guys collaborate? We, um, you know, it just depends. Last year. Um, it was a little bit different just because we were writing so many different things at once um, that had similar deadlines to them. Um, and so we, I mean, but I mean, I, you know, I guess the actual process is we will pitch on characters for such a long time 
you know, I, I, I think with most people, either the characters come to them first and then they go, man, like what, what's this guy's story? What's his or her story? Like what, what is it? Or, you know, the story comes to him first and then it's like, all right, who are the people in this story? It's, you know, that's generally how things kind of work with us. Um, so we'll stew on stuff for a long time. And then we're constantly, when we're out and about wherever, buying groceries or writing notes on our iPhones. So like our iPhones are just chock full of like dialogue that we'll be riffing on in the car or whatever. Um, but we incubate for a bit. We map out the plot, like on a dry erase board, kind of like just the basic kind of act structure and then we just start writing and sometimes we've you know we've written scripts where we'll just start writing and not really know where it's going to take us and that's super fun we've uh, you know i think we've experimented with all different kinds of approaches you know to to writing things so wow that sounds awesome uh well here's my big last question here it is so dun, 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 dun. um i'm sure you get asked this a lot or maybe never i don't know but uh <laughs> what like is there something that you haven't done yet that you're really excited to do in the in the future like a certain type of movie a certain type of genre is there anything out there that you're really excited to do later on in your career yeah i mean animation right now is just something that i'm i've always loved and um, you know, our, our recent Leica script that we just submitted, we were in love with. And, and um, yeah, I mean, do, doing a Western is something I've always wanted to do and doing animation. And this one is both wrapped into one film. So, um, yeah, but animation is something that I just love and, and um, that I haven't really done yet from a feature standpoint. So, yeah. But I'm a big sci-fi geek, too. Maybe one day you'll do a sci-fi film. That would be cool. Yeah. Sci-fi comedy is, like, uh, one of my favorite genres that um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a com- comedy person, so I'll probably never do anything like that. But I love t- ingesting it. So please do a sci-fi comedy. And sci-fi animated comedy, even better. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Well, thank you for yeah giving us a window into your world. It's it's really interesting for us to hear like what it's like on the other side of things, awesome. and like how how that this kind of dream that we all have like really plays out in real life. And it's inspiring too, you know. Just do it. Just shoot it. Just make it. Just no. don't take no for an answer. Like stop being in your own head. Just make a movie. <laughs> That's the biggest thing. There, you know, it's funny. Like one last story. There, you know, in film school, everybody would write their stuff. And in a screenwriting class, we would sit around and read it. And um, I remember this one kid, he's like, look, man, I just wrote this script. It involves, you know, clipper ships on the high seas. I'm going to need Bruce <laughs> Willis and at least 200 mil to make this. And it was just like, Pfft. and that dude hasn't done anything because he wrote something that was so far outside of his means and resources to be able to go make. And he's like no longer in the industry anymore. Like he didn't, you know, but the people that were writing things that were things that they could technically go out and shoot tomorrow, that were often, you know, very personal original stories that didn't require a whole lot from a production standpoint to pull off. 
like those people went out and made those things and they're still working in the industry. Like they graduated film school and, and they're the ones that are working. So yeah, I guess as a parting note, like that's what I'd say to people, man, do write something that's within your resources that you don't have to get permission from someone to go make. Yeah. I wasted a lot of years writing those kind of big budget movies because I was like, oh, I'm not going to limit my imagination. Like, that's the best thing about writing is you can you don't have to worry about budget. You can write whatever you want. But then you get to the end of a screenplay and then you're like, well, what am I going to do with it? I don't know anybody right. at a studio. If I did know somebody at a studio, who's going to give me a chance to get something produced as like a first time writer or first time filmmaker? Like no one. So it took me pretty much 10 years to get to the point where I'm like, all right, well, I should probably write something that's like reasonable within my means that I can go raise the money and do it myself. Right. I wish I hadn't wasted all that time. I wish I would have met you 10 years ago, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good stuff. So everyone, learn, pay heed. Pay heed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, cool, Jared. You can you can hop off now at any time, and then we'll we'll do our little outro. Okay, cool. So you don't have to stick around for that. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jared. We'll see you. Take care. All right, bye. Okay, Alric. If Jared was on the show today, what would you ask him now? Oh man, I think I would ask him questions about like like what he would have done if Napoleon Dynamite wasn't successful. He probably wouldn't have an answer for that question. This is the, this is the problem when you when you get people who are too successful. It's hard for them to like actually give like really meaningful like indie filmmaking advice for like people who are trying to make their second or third movies. Ran into the same problem with Shane Black at at, at Austin Film Festival. It's like his advice was useless for me in that moment. He had great advice for like writers and the creative process and the struggle and stuff like that, but like actual pragmatic advice for like getting things done. Like these guys. It's just hard for them because they don't have the same struggles. So I think I would ask Jared probably, I'd probably attempt one of those questions, but then I would ask about the Rugrats movie and how that was to write or if his version is the version that ended up being made or if that's still being made or what's going on with the Rugrats movie because I think he was working on that when we talked to him last and I don't think it's come out since then, probably. So I think it's still in development. So I wonder what's going on with this Rugrats movie. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how to phrase it, but it would be some sort of question about indie roots and whether there was any desire to go back to the way he made Napoleon Dynamite. And I think I saw an interview with him recently where he talked about ideas they had for a sequel and where all the characters would be now. And that sounds very amusing. But is the inclination to do that? I mean, first of all, who knows if he actually really wanted to do a sequel, whether that was just kind of an um, entertaining question. But does he miss the hunger and the experience and the feeling of indie film or is it just like so wonderful in the world of the establishment now for him? Like, I'm just curious what his takeaways are from being such an overnight success with Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, that's a great question. I think we kind of talked about that a little bit, but I think we also just got wrapped up in other things. But I just remember he was so funny. He was so funny. He did voices. He was just a funny, charismatic, hilarious person. And I was like, man, that's pretty cool. So Rugrats show did come out in 2021. It doesn't look like it was what he was working on because his name is not on there at all anywhere. So I don't know if it was like they had a Rugrats movie and a Rugrats show in development and they picked one 
or if that is just dead now because the show came out. I don't really know. But anyways, still would want to hear about the details of how that shakes out. Because I feel like that's so fascinating. Because people like work on these like adaptations and scripts and development and projects for many, many years, get paid lots of millions of dollars to do so. And then they just disappear off into somewhere else. So I'd love to hear about what happened and why right. and all that. When I worked at Paramount, I was like the intern for the head of Paramount. And he had me go and buy a mouse for the writer of Mighty Mouse because they were going to do a <laughs> Mighty Mouse movie. And I like never like checked in to see what happened to that movie. Like what happened to the Mighty Mouse movie? Yeah, I don't think it ever happened because I think I would know about it because I love Mighty Mouse. Well, I very specifically chose a mouse with no tail because I thought that the writer would appreciate that, like that that mouse went through some struggle. But no, that, no feedback. No feedback for the intern. Yeah. The latest Mighty Mouse project was from 1987. So I'm guessing it did not happen. Did not happen. <laughs> or not happen yet, at least. All right. Well, hey, you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion. Oh, wait, we're going to play the game. Woo! We're going to play the game. I can't believe it. I almost left without playing the game. <laughs> so we have never really done this before in one of these episodes, but uh, we're going to play a round of the game in the bonus throwback episodes because I, I personally feel like these episodes are not as good as I wish they were because it's just like I saying hello and here's the interview and then bye-bye. So like here, we're going to play the game. For those of you guys who don't know what the game is, uh, it was concocted by our producer, Eric Toms. And basically, it's an indie film making quagmire conundrum, like desperate, crazy situation that happens while you're trying to make your movie. You know, these are sent to either Liz or I, and we don't read them beforehand. And Liz is going to be answering this question completely blind. She does not know what this question is. She has not been prepped on it. Nothing. So here we go. I also haven't read this question, so I'm reading it for the first time here, too. You've been working very hard for the past two years to raise independent money for a passion project. You've had to raise a lot of capital due to the fact that the lead for your film has to be an incredibly good actor, so they'll be costly. You not only raise the money and find a great actor, but that actor is very popular and will help when it comes to the sale of the film. Sounds like a dream. However, bum bum bum, after a short period of time working with the actor, you feel like they're phoning it in. The scenes that they that require incredible emotional depth feel flat, and the actor seems to be the last one to, to arrive on set and the first one to leave. The lead is carrying the whole film, and if they don't buckle down and start taking it very seriously, then the film will not work, and all the money you've raised will be lost. Clearly, you have to sit down with the actor and have a real heart-to-heart, -heart, but how will you reach them? Do you A, use Gestapo tactics and threaten them with the fact that you'll drag their name through the mud, and if they don't shape up, then you will hurt their reputation? Ooh, dirty, dirty, Eric. Plead with them and let them know about all the, of the hard work you've done over the past few years in the hopes they will empathize with your situation. More like my style. C, take the approach that this actor must be going through some something personally and doesn't have their mind on the work. So you sit down, sit and talk with their, talk with them about their problems in the hopes that they will bring their focus back to the project. D, other. What do you do, director? What do you do? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's not about me, right? Like it's about them. So I think, first of all, I think there's another option. Option Z, I guess this is other, is like, just keep going. And, you know, 
even a flat performance from a fantastic actor, there's a lot you could do in the editing room. There's probably a lot you could work with. It may not be the absolute best thing that you can get, but I wouldn't sabotage a production or upset the equilibrium. You know, there's no no one being no one's being difficult. You know, yeah, they might be the last one to show up, but they're showing up on time. Yes, they might be the first one to leave, but they're leaving when their call time says they they can go. So like it doesn't seem that dire just to acknowledge that. But I would say I lean more towards C, which is like, hey, I don't know. Honestly, that feels so sorry. C is like talking to them about their personal life. That feels such so invasive. Like, what am I? Their therapist? No, that's not my job. And they don't need me to be that. But I would lean more towards having a conversation about maybe it's a vague conversation of just like, I'll take a scene that I didn't think was that successful and maybe take them out for coffee or ask them to meet a little early one day if I can, if we have the budget and ask them what what that scene meant to them and how they felt it went, right? And just get their perspective and be a little bit vague about it. Because I think, yes, we're in the arts and yes, we're in a very a field fraught with emotions and personalities, but that doesn't mean that you should overstep your bounds as like, a professional colleague and try to tap into their like mind grapes and squeeze them around. Like it just feels like you have a jurisdiction, you're there to direct, they're there to act. And if you can try to get at what the problem is through talking about the script, that seems the most accurate and most safe way to approach it, right? Because you also want a long-term relationship with this actor. You don't want to push push them. And you, and you want to have it at a time, I mean, maybe they're just doing five different projects at once and they're exhausted and they want to go to sleep. So for me, it would just be having starting off with a vague conversation using this script as as the way to see if they're going to share with me about what's going on in their life. Ark, what would you do? Yeah, something similar, I think. None, none of Eric's suggestions, because they're all crazy. <laughs> I mean, they're not crazy. It's just like, you know, I'm not going to... I feel like there's a real human way to approach this, you know? And I think, like, realizing that the reason why they're phoning in, it probably has... Maybe it's only on their personal side, but it probably has something to do with the material itself, and their connection to the material and their understanding or or their idea of who this character is if if maybe they don't even have that idea you know so because maybe it's not in the writing enough it just maybe i didn't do a good let's say i wrote the script maybe i didn't do a good enough job like really explaining what this character is and so they're like there's a disconnect and so i feel like trying to figure out what that disconnect is and just talking through the project and the character and and the scenes and i think like what you said like you know that question of how you thought it went I think would is a great question because like you want them to be engaged and involved and to care. Cause like currently they they don't care. Right. And like whatever you need to do, whatever you can to make them care, to make them think it's good, to make them feel like that this is something worth their time and worth their energy. And like, if they're a great actor, like they have it in them, but they're just not giving it to you for, for whatever reason. And I think it's your job as a director to figure out why that is. And I'm sure once you figure out what that the reason is, then you can get to that place. Ian Nelms, friend of the show, gave, actually talked about this a little bit. I'm not going to say which actor he, he referenced, but there was an actor that he worked with, a famous person, who basically they were like, like, they don't get good until take eight. Like, it takes take eight, take seven, take nine before they actually get to the place. And they don't always have the time to do that. 
But they basically realized that with this person, like that is what they needed to be good, you know, and then they didn't mind doing it that many times. They actually wanted it to do it that many times. Yeah. And they would get really frustrated if like you called it a take two or three because it's like they know that they're not there yet, you know, and they basically figured that out through working with them. And then they just know that now that that's like the secret to getting this person to 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 do the, the deliver what they need to deliver. And so I feel like trying to figure out what that is for this person is the key, like whatever they need to, to make it happen. And then like sometimes it can be referencing previous work. Like if you know this person's, you know, body of work really well, you can be like, hey, well, remember that thing you did in that one scene in that one movie playing this one character? Like that's the kind of thing that we're looking for here. Like that could potentially help with the right actor to help them get into the set, the mindset of the character that you, you have written, you know? Right. So I think just really partnering with them and like really coming to them, like, as like, Hey, we're doing this together. Like I, I don't, I'm not just using you as a person because I think you're going to like sell the movie. Like I want you, you know, using you as an actor. Like I want you as a person to work with me on this as an artist and a, as a collaborator, as a teammate, you know? And I think like coming with that energy might really make a big difference. Although I haven't worked with a lot of famous people, so I don't exactly know, but like that seems like the right way to go, you know? Yeah, I think you have to be delicate because I don't think there's anything wrong with that actor being the last in, first out, you know? And I don't think there's no. anything wrong with that actor not bleeding for a role or, yeah. or like losing sleep or being obsessed with a character, right? Like it's a job for them and it's a job for you. And I think that the presumption that they should care beyond working hours is, is like a dangerous path to go down. Yeah. So like, I agree with everything we're saying, but I think that I'll, I'll tug at Eric's question a little bit. I think the question presumes that there's a bigger problem than there is, right? And it's, and I love the idea of using the script. I also am just thinking, I got some really good advice from another director, Jill Dagnetica, and I was saying, I was working with an actor a long time ago and I didn't think they were very subtle. Like I thought that they gave like a very big performance and she was like, oh, this is the trick. You go and you say, oh, I love that moment of subtlety that you gave. Like there was no moment of subtlety, but you claim that there was a moment of subtlety. Mm. You're like, I love that moment of subtlety you gave around the middle of the scene. Can you really expand on that? And I just thought that was so interesting. It's like if you kind of project what you want them to do as if they're already doing it, that also seems to be a way to like back both of you into solving mm -hmm. the problem without saying yeah. be more subtle you know that's great that's that's because I, I i do that a lot like i'll find a thing i like in a performance and then yeah. i'll i'll talk about the good and say like yeah i really like that and maybe you can bring a little bit of that into the the opening line here like i think that would marry it really well together yeah. i never thought about inventing it yeah that was it was but like amazing it blew my mind i was like wait but <laughs> That wouldn't be truthful, but it's like it doesn't matter, right? Because it's this idea of like, how can you compliment someone, make them feel comfortable while getting it across, right? Because right, they're so, right. they're so, everything is so fraught with insecurity in this business. Yeah, that's so great. What a great piece. I do like this question. I do, I do feel like I like what you said about how like you assume that like this actor needs to be like with you, like all up all night, whatever. And like, no, that's not true. Like they can be first, for last in, first out. Like that's, that's actually what they should be doing. Like, yeah. that's like probably how you're going to schedule it, you know, for the, for the, the talent is for them to have like the, the least amount of time on set so they can like 
have the best time acting and doing their thing. Like you're not going to set their call time at your call time. You're going to set their call time for like the the last minute they need to be in the makeup chair to be ready to be on set for their role, you know? So yeah, I feel like that's a good point to bring up that like they, they're going to expect that and they probably should, you know? So good question, Eric. Love it. Thanks so much. So if you have a question suggestion for the game, you can write those and other questions, comment suggestions, do you like these throwback episodes? Are they are they getting it done? Is it better if there's a game or some sort of uh, segment involved in the throwback episodes? We want to know all these things. I desperately want to know if people are liking these these throwback episodes. So you can do that by sending an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which would be amazing. And also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks to our bonus episode editor and regular editor, Jeff Vrymoot, for doing the editing. Thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for just being incredible. Thanks to you all for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.